Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman. I am your host. My guest today is Amanda Lester. Uh, this is a great conversation about all things market research. Um, if you don't learn something about market research from this conversation, you may never learn anything about market research uh, from any conversation. It's a very thorough. It's a really great, actionable podcast. It's awesome. But before I tell you about what Amanda and I were up to yesterday, uh, check out my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in the refund protection. Um, tons of great stuff at BookingProtect.com. Uh, there has been some really great content about how to effectively use um, refund protection to protect your brand, uh, increase customer service, uh, all kinds of great stuff. You can check them out there. Hook them up on LinkedIn and give them a follow there or follow them on uh, Instagram where they post some really, really great photos. Um, but the data on this thing is clearer than ever. Since venues have started to reopen after the lockdowns, uh, people have been taking up refund protection at a great rate that is greater than ever before. Uh, it's some months, it, you know, it'll vary like everything, but some months it'll be twice the rate that it was happening before. Uh, and it has uh, stabilized at a rate that is much, much higher than previously seen. So check them out, bookingprotect.com. Talk to Haley, talk to Kat, talk to Kath, talk to Simon, talk to any of them. Uh, it's great people, great organization. Check out my website, DaveWakeman.com, where you can sign up for my newsletters, uh, read some blog posts, uh, check out the podcast, all that stuff. It's DaveWakeman.com. There's a little link that'll pop up. It'll tell you, uh, get the newsletter. Then you can get talking tickets or the business value. Uh, go there. There will be some new dates for workshops on market research uh, and pricing that I'm putting together for later in the year. Uh, and, you know, just get a good look at the Dave Wakeman website because I'm still very proud of the work that my designer did on it. So check that out. Uh, back to Amanda Lester, though. Amanda is a really great guest. Uh, I was so um, thrilled to have the chance to talk to her because we talked about two things that are super, super important now, uh, market research and audience development. And Amanda has what she describes as a different approach to research where the, uh, she almost always drives things towards an actionable insight. Um, and she feels that people get to their research much too late, which is something I agree with as well. Another really cool idea that she talks about is the idea of being a hypothesis driven organization. Um, it's means that you're driven by questions and guesses about what what drives people to act, uh, what you're trying to solve for, um, and what you're trying to see from the market. So it's a really cool idea that she talks about. Uh, we talk about a social media experiment that she's done to identify how uh, arts organizations are using social media. We talked about how anybody can start doing market research now. We talk about how to do market research, how to be um, find a champion or create champions in your organization. We talk about what it means to do not enough research or too much. We talk about uh, loyalists. We talk about pricing research. We talk about, and we hit on audience development. So this is a really, really, really great conversation. Um, I, I learned a lot. So um, I know, I'm hoping that you will as well. So here's my conversation with Amanda Lester on the business of fun. 
I want to welcome Amanda Lester to the Business of Fun podcast. Amanda, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is going to be great. Uh, I have suckered you into talking to me today about two things that I think are very, very um, timely and important. Um, probably they're always timely and important, but like they have keep gaining importance because of uh, the ongoing nature of the pandemic that will that, you know, despite it being the YOLO wave now, uh, it's, it's still impacting people, uh, it, it's changing people's behavior. And who knows what it's doing to people health wise, but it's still going on. And that's market research and audience development. So this is I think this is going to be awesome. Uh, I, I totally think that you have some ideas, I think, that are super awesome. And I'm excited to talk to you. Me too. Thank you. I'm looking at my notes here. So don't like if I stutter, it's just because I'm looking at the notes, you know, and you know, I'm a, I'm totally tough on people. Uh, and so I want to start out this conversation because I talk about market research quite a bit. And I'm always curious be, uh, about understanding people's philosophy behind how they do market research. And I think do you have a slightly uh, different way of thinking through market research than I do. So I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you approach research. Sure, of course. So I, just to start with my background, because I think that that plays into this philosophy that I have. So I started as a classical musician, trained classically. Um, I then went into arts administration at the LA Phil doing marketing and audience development and insights. And now I'm working as a researcher in media and entertainment. And something that I've, I've observed over my time in arts administration especially is that uh, many of these organizations are not doing enough research, so they need to do more. They need to do it more frequently. Um, they need to do it more consistently. And I think that they need to do it earlier in the process. So I think that the barriers that I've observed, at least, um, that's stopping these organizations from doing enough research is the obvious ones, lack of time and lack of budget. Um, but I don't think that those are really excuses anymore with the technology um, that we've that we have access to these days in the research world. Um, those are we have audience insights at our fingertips um, all the time. And so the only thing left that I think is really standing in the way of what people in this industry call actionable insights, um, I think that's time. From what I've experienced, and you know, other people may have, have had different experiences, but in my experience, I think that these research studies that are happening are taking place too late. So they're taking place, they take some time to, to work through, you come up with insights, and at that point, the decisions have already been made, and people have moved on, and there's no, there's no room to change or for these insights to inform what you're doing. So you end up waiting a year or maybe two years. And you hope that there's going to be another opportunity for you to implement and apply these insights. But by that time, you know, they might not even be relevant anymore and you need to do more research. So what I, what I, um, what I think, and I, this is my philosophy, and I think that these organizations should be doing much more of this, is doing uh, research very early on in the process as you're developing programming, as you're thinking about concepts, as you're thinking about new ticketing offers and structures. Um, this all needs to happen very early. And some examples that I like to give are, so I, I work in the media and entertainment space right now. And, you know, movie studios, do they release movies or TV shows uh, before testing them? The answer is no, very, very rarely. 
they test almost all of them. And then you think about a Fortune 500 company. Would they launch a major advertising campaign without testing it first? Probably not. There's too much at stake. And then you also think about, you know, that same company, would they release a new website or a new app without testing it first? And that answer is absolutely not. And yet this is happening all the time in the entertainment industry, right? Yes. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And and I'm, I don't know if you've actually, uh, if you'll, you'll know this example or not, but, um, or if I'm sure you do, you know, famously people try to roll out the idea, oh, Steve Jobs never did. Uh, market research, which is completely false, because all you got to do is go to the the the, um, the records from their lawsuit with Samsung, I believe it was, and they did more market research than anybody. And it, you know, so like, don't come in the, in here with the Steve Jobs defense, because we will swat it out of here. Um, so when you talk, so that but that leads me to another question. So how early, when you say people are doing it too late, how early should people be starting their their research? So just using the arts as an example, since that's the background I come from, I think that, you know, when when programmers and marketing teams are thinking about concepts for uh, their upcoming season, so this can happen a couple of years in advance, right? They're thinking about tentpole themes. I think that they should be doing concept testing with those. And then, you know, as they start developing further, they have the programming starting to get locked in before they start creating their advertising campaigns, their subscription campaign materials, their messaging and imagery, they should be testing those. And this should all happen in a couple of years leading up to a season. Yeah. And and would it be accurate, you know, if I'm putting words in your mouth, you can go ahead and just say, Dave, you're a numpty. uh, And and everybody will completely agree with you and it will be a totally appropriate (laughs) response. Uh, But it's never too early to really start uh, to understand uh, start understanding your market right and you can you should probably if i'm not mistaken in your answer never really stop talking to your market yes 100% um it's never too early and you should never stop talking to them yes that's every now and then perfect. i'm right every now and then i totally <laughs> nail something this is good i, I, I this is this made my day. Uh, <laughs> now, so then that brings me to the, um, pe- you know, the lack of time and the lack of budget argument that you say people have all the time. Um, and I know that probably as soon as we post this episode, people are going to come and they'll say, oh, it still doesn't apply to me. So I want to knock down this idea before because we were talking about some ideas and ways that you can do that even before we started recording. When people bring lack of time or lack of budget to you, uh, how do you tell people to appro- approach this? Because I, I, I know that should those those shouldn't exist either. Right. Well, uh, just from my perspective, uh, I've I've seen lots of tools that are being developed um, over the years that, you know, traditional research, yes, has been very time time consuming and um, and costs a lot. Uh, but there there are new tools these days, like you were talking about big data earlier. There's that, but there's also ways to uh, literally have Zoom conversations with your audience members. It just, when you're thinking about early research, and as long as you're doing it often enough, you can you can bring down the scale a bit, and that makes things much more accessible cost-wise and time-wise. So if as long as you're doing a, occasional big research projects to really get the whole picture, I think that you can also drop in at certain moments before you're 
like as you're creating your ads or as you're creating your messaging, you can test those with small groups of people. You can have a few conversations with audience members and run these things by them. And as long as you're understanding that, yes, you're only talking to a, a few people and you have to take everything with a grain of salt, I think it's completely valuable to get their input at every stage. So I think, you know, thinking about scale and bringing that down a bit and then just leveraging all of this online technology that we have now. Yeah, uh, I'm probably going to frame or ask this question. It probably is. I'm not, I'm not going to do a good job of asking this question is what I think is going to happen because it's going to be hard for me to put into words what I think is a simple concept of for us but it might not be simple for people who are struggling with research or like trying to get buy-in on it. Um, but you talked about using Zoom to talk with just individual audience members. Um, do you have a way that you talk to people about the progression? You know, like, you know, where do you start? And then like, where does it end? You know, and is that like with, you know, small groups and then it, it leads to when you do a big research project or how, how do you talk to people about this whole, this continuum of research? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on your goals. Uh, market research tends to be highly customized and that's because there are different methodologies that are more effective at, at getting insights when you have different objectives. Um, so I, I think it really depends, unfortunately, but I, you know, I think using smaller scale research and using that as a, as a case study and showing the results can be really effective at getting buy-in for more research. And something that I heard recently is that the ROI for research is enormous. It is one of the most, uh, the most high ROI things that your organization can invest in. And that's because these insights are really informing, they should be informing all parts of your operation. And it really helps you connect with people. So I think using small-scale research to show the value can be really effective. Um, and I think, you know, it also, it, it depends on, you really need a champion internally at your organization who will help um, make the case. But also, once the research is finished, make sure that it's filtering out to everyone so that people know about it, are aware of it, and then can apply it. So th those would be my two things there. So... That's interesting. You know, you need a champion. And I'm curious, you know, how do you gain a champion in an organization? Because you were talking about market research and building new websites. And uh, I, I, of course, did a bunch of research before I built my new website. And what I found was that there's this just incredible amount of distrust of the marketing function in most organizations. And it's, I think, partly because it's too tactified, right? Like the people, people don't understand what marketing strategy means and that you have to put strategy before tactics. So then it makes it much more challenging. Um, actually, let me give you the full thought before I go ahead and jump into the question. Mm -hmm. Part of that is also because marketing has become tactified. It's become the communications department and less about driving revenue. And I, and I think those com that combination of those two ideas has made it much more difficult for people to go to uh, the executives or the board or anybody to gain um, buy-in on research. So how do you talk about getting a champion? And or if, or is the premise of my question completely false? In you know through your work, I don't think it's false at all. I think you're right. It, it can be hard to find a champion and to to help them see the value. Um, in my experience, 
when people observe qualitative research, that's the most powerful uh, way for people to become champions because they are hearing audiences, customers in their own words, watching their emotions, watching the passion and um, hear, basically hearing the voice of the customer for themselves. That's the most powerful thing. So if you, if you are doing interviews, if you're doing focus groups, have people observe, really encourage that. So that would be a big thing for finding a champion. Um, as far as as far as getting buy-in, can you repeat the first question again? <laughs> I jammed you up. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> so, well, the, the the idea of really just gaining a champion—that was what the the, the yeah. question was about, you know. And it's like, how do how do you go about teaching people to do that? Uh, because you know, and then I went off on my own little soliloquy about like all the research I did. But which uh, the correct answer to the first question would have been like, well, your research is not completely bogus. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I was just, I'm just curious about how you actually, uh, you, you know, you talk to somebody to gain those champions and qualitative data, like you said, is um, incredibly powerful because, um, you know, it is the real voice, right? You know, so, um, you know, it, but I guess to go, to go further on that is, you know, where, you know, what, what are additional steps we can take? That's a great question. Something Something that, and I, I don't know if this will connect as well as it is for me, but I, I actually wonder about using the term market research. And I, there is a lot of debate, I think, in the research world about the right terminology. And I think that that pigeonholes what this can be used for, what research is really can be valuable for. So, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a preferred term, but when I was at the LAFIL, for example, you know, I was providing insights for far beyond the marketing department. I was working mm-hmm. with philanthropy. I was working with education. I was working with artistic team. Um, so this doesn't just have to be about about prices and, and tickets, although that is certainly an important part of it. But I think just showing that you that insights can be a value for the organization at large is really important. It's not just about marketing. It's not just about communication and messaging. That is a huge part of it. Absolutely. But there's so much more that you can gain from insights. Yeah. And for the, the, I mean, how successful I am at doing this is, is up for debate. Uh, but my overriding theme and argument is that everything you do is marketing. And therefore, this research pays off, like you said, in philanthropy it pays off in programming it pays off in pricing which we'll get to in a second because you open the door now we're gonna we're gonna talk about this because people try to tell me you can't research price and i tell them that they're well i say they're morons for it uh, very often uh because it's like a, an excuse to not do your job is really what it is um but it, it's super helpful and I'm I'm just curious though about this the idea of champions and like building these things up and you building you know gaining actual insights because it's it's um again you oh, you talked about how before we started recording I talked about big data and how well and I should use air quotes here big data because it's like always like we have all this data we don't ever use it in a way that makes yep. any kind of sense for how our business operates. Um, you know, when, when you are going to get this champion, 
and you and I get it. We we completely understand that like marketing's everything, or at least I think marketing's the entire everything you yeah. do, right? Okay, okay, good. Yeah. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, <laughs> oh, I agree. Some, I agree. If something's stupid, it's all it's always fine to say that. Dave said that he's stupid, and it's totally appropriate because I, I would agree. Um, but you know, <laughs> when marketing's everything, you know, how do you, um, you, you know, how? What are some of the barriers to overcome for that? Because, like, I think having a champion's great, but then, like, you know, you talk to the operations department, right? Or you talk to your IT department, they're going to be like, "That's ridiculous." So then, how do you how do you continue to push it? Maybe when th- there's a resistance because there are people who don't have that sort of understanding or belief in the power of research. Because I think um, if I'm not misreading your work and not misreading the conversation we're having you. And again, I, I agree with you. So this is not me putting uh, anything except for my, maybe my impression on this is that research has the power and the capability to change an organization. It has an, a chance to overcome every barrier that you face, um, every uh, issue that might be raised, Every every problem that you could have, you can figure it out by research because people tell you what they can't, what they think, and what they want. If you all you do is ask and you shut up, which I haven't done a very good job of. So now I'm going to ask and shut up. No, I I think that's an excellent question, um, and I, I think I have two answers to that. So the first mm-hmm. is based on my experience, I think you need to get everyone who you possibly can in the organization involved in the research. Mm -hmm. From the beginning. So when I was doing some research at the LA Phil, for example, um, might be surprising to hear this, but at that point we were cast strapped. It was the middle of the pandemic. We were trying to, trying to understand where people's heads were at um, and we needed to do it quickly and we needed to do it very inexpensively. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, we have, we have customer service representatives who uh, know our audiences very well, um, are great at talking to people. And so I roped them in very friend, very nicely <laughs> into helping me recruit for, for some qualitative research. And they did an amazing job. They were, they were so good at it and they enjoyed it so much. And they wanted to know, you know, what were the results? We, we, we would love to hear. And they, they just caught on to the, to the research idea so quickly and with so much enthusiasm that, you know, I, I sort of had an epiphany. Like, we have all of these human resources who are so passionate about this. Give them the chance to get involved in some way, and that will create buy-in. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is sort of like we were talking about earlier, that there's not enough research happening, and it's not happening all the time like it should be. But I, I think that we need to start building research into our processes so that it's never a question of, oh, should we do some research? It should be part of the process. So if you go back to, I was using movies as an example, um, where at my work, we're testing movies, we're testing TV shows, and we're doing that in a sort of iterative process. This is, this is, um, it is assumed that you're going to test your movie and that you're going to take audience feedback into account. And that is just the way it is done. And I think that that's sort of, we need to change our mindset and research just has to be built in to the process. And that will also help with the timing issue, I think. Yeah, 
I think that's awesome uh, because I have been working on a couple of big research processes, uh, projects, and the more you get people involved, the better the whole thing goes because people want to, they, they want to, they want to know what's going on. Right. And it, oh, that's sure. awesome. They will give you everything because they, they, because you feel, you know, they feel listened to. And then it, it's, and this is where the question comes. And then it's like, uh, because you're talking to customer service, they direct line to the customer. And so then my, my question then here is because one of the challenges that I deal with a lot and it's unfortunate is getting executives to always pay attention to the people who are the front line with the customer, because there's a broken link between the two, two sides. And it's unfortunate because, and I'm going to, most of the time it's a dude that's saying this is going like, Oh man, I know exactly what the customer wants. I'm going to totally tell you. And it's often completely wrong (laughs) from what people really are buying or want or are doing. Um, How do you bridge that disconnect between the front line and the C-suite or the executives, you know, VPs we'll get, we'll get, we'll, we'll capture everybody, the board, because I've sit on boards and sometimes the board doesn't, doesn't want to talk to, to the, to the customers. I'm like, God, oh, geez, please, please help me. That, that definitely resonates. <laughs> that is a big challenge. Um, and, and, you know, I think it all goes back to some of the things that, you know, we were talking about earlier about people relying on their assumptions um, rather than, than hypotheses, which is something I like to think of. Um, and, and sort of what you were talking, I think, before we started about people are, are so, this is, it can be such an insular community, whichever, whichever sort of type of organization you're in, that you sort of lose, lose touch with the customer. Um, and, and like you said, frontline people tend to be closer just in general. And so they have a better understanding. You know, I think I would go back here again to, um, especially with qualitative research, with quantitative, it's a little harder because you're just looking at numbers and it's not as powerful emotionally. But I think um, getting, uh, not I wouldn't say video testimonials, but doing, um, doing focus groups or interviews and getting clips on video and showing highlight reels maybe to your executives so that they can see and hear the customers in their own words. That I think would really help and, and help them uh, realize where the customer's head is at. And, you know, even better is if you can get them to actually sit and observe. And that's one of the difficulties these days, um, especially with more online research, is getting people's full attention, even the observers. You need to get people to really disconnect, say, I'm going to be out for a few hours because I'm doing this and this is important work. And you need their full attention because if, if, you know, they're trying to answer emails, it's not, it's not going to work. So I would go back to seeing and hearing the customers in person. And then once they start understanding how much, how much value there is in that feedback and, and really starting to get a sense of where people are, then I think that they will be more open to hearing what the customer service reps have to say and the frontline workers. Yeah. I, and I'm going to use a bit, I'm going to use a word I think you, I'm pretty sure you know. Uh, the audience, the people listening may not know this word, um, but ethnography, right? And and that's really what you're you're describing is like we're trying to get people to do ethnog- ethnographic research. Um, and one of the big challenges that I struggle with is even, you know, when you're dealing with somebody in sports or in 
theater or in the arts is like um, talking to an executive or somebody on the board and going, go through the event like a customer, like from where you have to buy the buy the ticket to how you you get to the building to all these things. And then I want you to come back to me and tell me how your experience was. And then I turn it around and go, hey, now, how would you feel if that was it's because yes. it's almost entirely different than people imagine. They, you know, they, they, again, it's an idea. It's, it's not real. It's conceptual. And because it's conceptual, it's not that big a deal, right? Because, oh, it's just, you know, and so, so how, how do you get people to do that? Because I think it's, um, it's a re- really powerful thing, right? It's like, you know, not just the, the Zoom because the digital stuff is like, it's great, but there's nothing like, you know, you being there and going and sitting in the 10th, you know, or not even the 10th row center because you know that's going to be yeah. amazing. How about you go sit in the balcony and see what that experience is like and they'll give you a different perspective. You know, do you have success with getting people to do that? And I know with like movies, it's probably a little easier because there's just a um, culture about that of like yeah. going to the theater and going around that. But um, in your work in the arts and everything, you know, how, how, how successful or, you know, transformative have you seen stuff like that become? You know, I haven't seen much of that done in, in our world, unfortunately, <laughs> but I think that that's an Very similar. incredible idea, but you know what I think is especially important about it is not just going to sit in the balcony and listen to the concert, but to, like you said, go through the entire process of choosing a concert buying your ticket, maybe trying to exchange it, <laughs> going parking or taking public transportation like an, like an audience member would, um, having to deal with all of the, all of the pre and post experience um, experiences, elements, because that, that has such a huge impact on, on how people feel and whether or not they come back. And that's often the part that I think is missed. Um, so I would 100% agree with you. I think you have to convince them to take the risk. And then once they do it, I think that they will get on board because I think, like you said, it's such a powerful experience to do that in person. Um, another thing that I, I've heard of happening a bit is having an executive um, do a frontline workers role for a little while. Um, so have them sort of like switch places with them and experience talking to the customers, um, helping them get through issues themselves. So that they, I mean, then they're really having to, they're, they're learning what are, what are the barriers, what are the challenges, what are the pain points, and then they're having to try to figure out how to solve them. And I think that'll also bring issues up, up the ladder a bit. <laughs> Yeah, no, I th- <laughs> I definitely think like if uh, you put your executive director or your marketing director mm-hmm. behind the bar during intermission, mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll change yep. their entire um, yeah. opinion on whether or not office, sec- uh-huh. yeah, you need another box office window open or right. another bartender. <laughs> and, it's another, but, another kind of ethnography, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it's super important because, again, if you just look at the number, you're like, going, oh, well, that's going to cost like, you know, $100 or something or like. $500. And then you realize like on, Hey, look, a, it improves the customer's experience and it probably ends up paying for itself too. So don't be, you know, don't be ridiculous as far as that goes. I mean, it, it the, typically better customer service pays for itself over and over and over again. Uh, just like good market research does, which 
because you talked about this thing going through the whole process and you brought up the idea of the post uh, event process too, I wanted to come back to this idea of building in research into the process because I find that one of the things that really people miss is that they don't follow up or they don't follow up effectively. And so you miss a lot of lessons, right? You know, right after an event, if you follow, you know, I, I am a big user of Net Promoter Score only because it's very simple and it's easy to get uh, quantitative and qualitative uh, information. And I use three questions. Um, you know, you can only use the one, the magic question. Um, how do you, how do you build it into the process though, from your point of view? You know, how, what, what, what would, um, a successful post event or uh, process look like where you built research into your in you know into the whole organization again right. my question asking sometimes is not the greatest here so oh i i, I get it that's a great question convoluted is what I would, we'll call it <laughs> um and and okay so i think that from what i've seen a lot of organizations try to do some follow-up um, and I'll start with what I think doesn't work. Um, long surveys don't work. It needs to be short, like yours. Three questions, probably max. Um, so that's a big one. Keep it short. Uh, secondly, I think that a lot of times those who are doing post-concert or post-event research, they don't really know what they're going to do with the information that they gather. They just collect it, and it sort of gathers dust. And maybe they look at it, at the end of the season, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> but it doesn't really go anywhere. And so I think you really have to go into a, a post event research project over multiple events with a really clear idea of your goals and what you are going to do with the data. And so, you know, something that, something that I think is really important is socializing the insights, socializing the data that you collect. If it just, stays with one person or even just within the marketing department, then it's probably not going to be successful. It's not going to stick. Um, so I, I think those are two, two really, really big things that you need to consider before you start doing this or as you're maybe updating your post-event uh, research projects. Yeah. So when, so when you say socialize the insights, does that mean internal and external or just internal? Internal. Okay. I would say internal. But, you know, since you bring that up, I think that in my experience with, with performing arts, I think probably with sports and theater too, these audiences are incredibly passionate. Um, I mean, especially when you're talking about your most loyal, but you know, even people who just had a wonderful experience at their first time. And oftentimes I've, I've seen, they want to know the results. They want to know what, what people think and they want to know what you're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's often a hesitancy to, Share some of these insights with your audience and say, you know, you told us this. And so here's, here's what we're, how we're going to respond because we want to listen to you and we want to value your insight. We value your feedback. And I, I think that we need to be a little bit less, a little bit more transparent about the feedback that we're getting and what we're going to do about it. Because I think that that builds trust, that builds loyalty, that builds engagement with your audiences. And, you know, yeah. uh, sorry, to, sorry to go back to something, but I, I, you know, I was thinking more about your question about getting buy-in from executives. And I think sort of what I think sums it up well is 
we have to market our our research to the internal organization. And as we know as marketers, we need to we need to generate an emotional connection with our executives. We need them to feel something. We need them to connect with a human uh, story that conveys the insights and the data. So I think that's really the key is, is um, making them feel something. That, that's where the power comes in. And you you would think that that would come natural or it would seem natural. You would think. Not, not, yeah, not, not come naturally because I think, you know, um, telling a story that emotionally resonates with people is hard work. So I don't want to say you, but you would think that that would be something that people were aware of is that um, these emotional, because of the nature of the business, <laughs> but it's, <Right>. often, <laughs> it's often missed. Um, we all have but, work to do. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, myself included. Um, now, I will tell, I will say this because you know, you got you talked about I need to publicize my my uh, your successes and public. You know, people want to know, and there'll, there'll be a question here, but this will be like I'm gonna humble brag here because I've uh, I do my NPS score probably uh, at least twice a year, um, if not three times a year, and the last time I got a hundred which was pretty amazing uh, because it had always been a, a tremendously high for the newsletter and podcast um, before, but it was 70, like 70, 65, 70. Uh, it's always been above 50. So it's great. Um, and, you know, but people want to know what I found out. They like love to find out the, yeah. the insights and like what, like what, what issues are people dealing with? Um, what stories do people, you know, like it when I cover what guests are doing well, uh, all of these things. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, so it's pretty exciting, and I'm never going to run another another survey because I'm going to just go out on top on the surveys because now I, <laughs> I, I can only go down. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <but, laughs> got to keep your your 100. <laughs> exactly, my MPS score 100 is staying clear. Um, but what I wanted to ask though is because you talked about how rabid and how um, emotionally engaged the fans are for these things, and one of the challenges now, as you know, whatever stage and whatever wave of the pandemic we're in. Uh, we're dealing with is there's always this uh, idea that if I just engage the people who are super passionate uh, that are already my fans, then I'm going to be totally fine. And I think that, and I don't know your opinion on this, but I'll be, so I'll be curious. Um, you'd never, you, you always need to be fighting to get more, you know, expand your reach and expand your audience. Um, how does this convert? How do you, how do you convey that to people, right? Because it's a struggle because people feel like, oh, I just need to get a more people, the more of the people I already have to come more often, which may or may not be possible. Uh, and then you end up like uh, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in South Australia did some really great research that showed, and this was B2B, that 95% of your potential target market's not even in the in the market for what you're selling at this time. Mm-hmm. Um and you realize that like there, there's a large, a much larger addressable audience than you could possibly realize, um, and most people are ignoring it. So how do you bring that across to people? Because that's a huge. If you address those people, it would be a huge opportunity, and people miss the opportunity all the time. At least from my where I'm sitting. I don't know about you. You so may have a different. From uh, where I'm sitting. From where I'm sitting. <laughs> I agree. I think it is a huge missed opportunity. And I, it's, I think there are some reasons behind why we only 
market to our loyalists, and some of them are obvious. You know, it's easier. <laughs> They're already listening to us. Um, it's easier to convert them to purchases. Uh, so I, I don't want to say that we're just being lazy because I don't, I don't think that's all of it. I think it's part of it. Um, it feels efficient to us, but then someday we're going to run out of those people and we're not going to be able to, to scale. Um, some of the other reasons that I think are less obvious, and this might be a bit controversial to say, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. I think that, I think that we are sometimes afraid of what other people are going to say and that we're not asking the right questions of them anyway. Um, I think that we, we may not want to hear some of the things that they have to say about the kind of experiences that we offer. Um, and so I think there's a certain amount of bravery that has to come into it. You have to be willing to hear um, things that may challenge your assumptions. They may challenge your uh, personal opinions and feelings about the entertainment that you present. And you have to be okay with hearing that that, that is someone else's point of view and it's valid too. Um, so I, I think that's also a big one. We need to be brave. Um, I think it's also, it's, it's hard to find people. It's expensive to find people who will talk to you who are not your loyalists. And I think that that's, that, at least in my experience um, in arts organizations, has been a big barrier. It's, it's intimidating to try, how, how do we find those people? How do we get them to talk to us? Um, so I, I think that there's some work to do there and, and looking maybe to some for-profits and how they're, how they're doing that kind of research. And it also requires investment. So it's like you said, you, you know, in order to do that kind of research, you have to have buy-in. And you need, the, you need the funds to be able to get those people to talk to you. And, you know, that, that actually brings something else up that I, I think is related. And it's a big theme in the research community that I'm sure you're, you know about that is respecting your respondents. So these people, especially in my experience with, um, with arts organizations, and you're talking to your loyalists and you're talking to some high potentials, you need to make it valuable for them too. And part of that is maybe sharing a bit of information on your findings with them because they're interested. Part of them is rewarding them, incentivizing them, and respecting that they deserve that for giving you their time and opinion. And I think that that is, it's, it's easier not to do that with your loyalists. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to talking to your high potentials and even people who aren't even on your radar, you need to make it worth their while. Mm -hmm. And that is how you get people to talk to you. And they'll respect that, that you value their time. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said that, like on, if we're going to invite people to do something, like if we're going to have a little focus group or we're going to do this, we got to give them something. <laughs> Yes. And people are like, going, yes. well, won't they just answer the thing? I go, no, they won't. I go, it, it went, and again, we'll use my experience because I can, we can, we can talk about it with, um, without a filter, right? And it's so if I put a, a survey in my newsletter or in the uh, show notes for the podcast that has an incentive. Right. Like I gave like I'll give away a, a twenty five dollar gift card to Amazon. It doesn't have to be a lot. People are like much more likely to respond to this. Or if I say I'm going to send them a copy of one of, of a favorite book that I've been reading that's like about, you know, strategy or marketing or something. The response rate increases. It's a, a sign of respect. Like you said, it's completely you know, it's not even about the gift. It's about the acknowledgement that like your opinion matters. 
you and you are, you know, I value what you're going to tell me because again, most of the time you, you do a re, uh, a survey, you do some research. It's easy for people to feel like, oh, eh, this is fine. Like, you know, like I'm, I could do it. I could not. Um, they don't care. Right. Because you never see the actual impact, the results, you know, right. especially if you or especially if you don't see the impact and the results. It's very, very, very difficult to um, bring it across to people. Um, now, w- in a second, I'm going to ask you about a cool project you're doing. But I have one more question I want to ask because I kind of tipped it earlier on um, pricing. Right. And the price and because we've been talking about the um the research after the fact and talking to loyalists and talking to people who are high potential. Um, what role does pricing play in all of this? And I know that, it, you know, it's uh, as far as ROI, if you can pre- move that pricing button, that's the most important move you can make because for every 1% of price you increase, you get 11% in profit. And I don't know any arts or any, I don't really know any business that can turn down a 10 or 11% uptick in profit. Um, but a lot of people push back on me because I talk about price, pricing all the time. Most of the time it becomes in my famous uh, phrase, discounts are for dummies. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you talk to people about pricing research? Because I think people misunderstand it when I, maybe they don't misunderstand it when I talk about it, but they misunderstand how you can do pricing research. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in my experience, well, first I'll just say, yes, you should absolutely research pricing before setting prices or increasing prices or doing big discount campaigns. I do think you should do some research around it. It's, it's such a, a big risk for your organization, which, which way you go. Um, in my experience, I've, I've worked on pricing projects where we use conjoint analysis. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where you're, you're asking respondents to choose between different uh, sort of packages you could you could think of them as so each of them has a certain certain elements in them that have a price attached and as they choose the different the different um packages that they are most attracted to you start to understand what do they value the most that is within what are the elements that they value the most and that most drive um uh intent to purchase so i think that's a really good tool um i i think that you know you have to take, even though you should be doing market research around pricing, you do have to take everything with a grain of salt because at the end of the day, they're probably just answering a survey or talking to you and they're not actually buying something. Right. It, it's different yeah. when it's imaginary versus right. when they are actually putting down money. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. something else though that I would add, and this is less to do with research than with sort of audience development and marketing around pricing is for audiences, from what I've heard from them, a lot of this is about risk. They're, the money that they're putting down to attend your experience is a risk for them because they don't know, really, if they're going to enjoy themselves, if it's going to be a dud, if they're going to be bored, if they're going to love the music or if they're going to hate it, um, if their team is going to win or lose. And so I think what you have to do is you have to start thinking about how do you minimize the sense of risk? And so, you know, I think what that sort of boils down to, if you can find enough ways to connect with them to minimize their sense of risk, the pricing is less important. Like whatever you set the price at, 
Because if they feel like they are confident, they're going to get the value for that price. That's really what matters. They need to trust that no matter what, they're going to have an experience that was worth it. So that's that's sort of my take on it. (laughs) I, um, if I could just convince people to put on the lens or the hat of of thinking through the value that someone is going to receive from a product, a service, an event. Um, I think that it would clear up, it wouldn't clear up everything, but it would start people on a path that would um, clear up a lot of the sort of, um, um, you know, big hairy problems that people are dealing with because it's often too easy to look at it just from your point of view. Right. So you're doing the research or you're you're setting the price because I need to hit this budget number or I need to sell this number of tickets or I need to do this or I need to do that. As opposed to like, what is the customer going to get from this? You know, how how is this going to improve their life? Right. We, we, we both know Ruth Hart and like Ruth was talking about jobs to be done. And it's really, really like an incredible way of looking at it because people are coming to us for, you know, Market research, they want to make more money, right? <laughs> for, uh-huh. right? For, for strategy work, they, they want to make more money. They come to us because they want to make more money. Okay. But like they come to an arts organization because maybe they need a, um, a special event with, with their loved ones, right? Or they, um, you know, want to entertain a new business associate or they're trying to maybe take somebody through an interview process and they want to see how they, they react in a social setting. And there's all these different things. And if you understand it, it becomes more valuable more you know more impactful and it becomes like you said the price becomes less of a point because price in my research and in the work i've done i've always found that it's a knee-jerk response it's a knee-jerk objection objection because it reflects the fact that people don't see the value that you're asking right. them to give in dollars um you know but that and that's my um you know that's my stance on all of this um but i want to ask you about your tracker your social media tracker, because you've been running this cool thing that I was looking at. Actually, when you mentioned it to us when we were getting on on here, I was just looking at it and how you you've been tracking. Um, it's a social media experiment, but arts and entertainment organizations and how well they're doing on different. Uh, I saw I was looking at the Instagram numbers in the top five. My favorite, uh, the Phil, the New York Philharmonic was like number two or number three. Uh, you know, so can you tell us a little bit about this? Because I, I, I do think that this stuff is kind of cool to look at and you can see how people use social media and what makes an effective campaign. Sure. Well, I mean, to start with. So from what I've heard and from what I've experienced. Uh, digital communications is such a big challenge for arts organizations and probably for other types of organizations. We're, we just haven't figured out, it's a puzzle and we haven't figured it out yet. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that this project can um, help us sort of cooperate to try to figure out what is, what is the best way to use digital media and social media to engage with audiences and to get them to interact with us. Um, so what I did was I, I, started thinking about, you know, social media engagement um, for orchestras, because that, that's my background. And when I was working at an orchestra, uh, we, you know, we, we tracked our, our own performance. And I think most organizations track their own performance. And they track it against previous performance that they did. So it's always sort of within a vacuum of their own past performance. And I think that there's definitely things you can learn there. Uh, don't stop doing that. But I think that we're missing a big part of the picture in not looking at 
the context. What are other orchestras doing? What are other arts organizations doing? What are other cultural organizations doing? Because we're competing for views and engagement with them. Um, so I thought it would be interesting, and this was just, I started for fun out of my curiosity, to stack the orchestras up against each other. So I chose about, I chose 21 orchestras um, that I was interested in. And I pulled a bunch of publicly available data from their social media pages, and I ranked them. <laughs> By, uh, by interaction on their social media posts per month, uh, video views per month, follower count. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I think I'm gonna track it month over month. And that has been incredibly interesting to see how the rankings are moving and shifting depending on what they're posting in a given month. Um, and so, you know, this is an experiment for now. Um, I've gotten quite a bit of interest from orchestra administrators who are I mean, this is interesting data to see that I don't think that they've really had access to before. And so, you know, for now it's phase one, but I'm thinking about other ways to expand it and how to, for right now it's just a spreadsheet, um, but what I'd really like to do is make it more visual um, and start sharing more detailed insights based on the data. Because I think that I've barely scratched the surface of what is there. And I'm really hoping that what we can all learn from this project will help all of us improve on social media. Yeah. And I would say that it, um, the one thing, too, just because we and you tell me if I'm wrong here, is like you talked about all the con the context matters, but don't just limit it to your who you think your direct competition is like go yeah. outside of that because that's super important and it's um if we're talking market research which we've been doing for about an hour now um you have to know who your competition is like who who is fighting for the the attention that you want as well and i you know but i think the thing is cool because it reminded me of this thing i did during um when lockdowns first started about uh, brand tracking for different, like, well, it started out as sports because I was just like, it was easy for me to find that data, right? Because it was all publicly available yeah. data. And, and, and it was like, it was amazing to see what was happening. It was like amazing to see like, uh, you know, depending on winning and losing or, or player signings, how much a brand would move and shift in these different yeah. numbers. And it was pretty, That's it's exactly a pretty, right cool project that you're doing. And I would tell people that, to um, give it a look. Um, where can people find the tracker? They can find you. Uh, where do you want to point people towards today? Uh, people can check out my LinkedIn page. I'm posting regular updates each month um, with a little, some tidbits of insights uh, along with the updated rankings. Um, so you can check those out on my LinkedIn page. Um, that's, that's the best place to go for now. Um, I'm planning to eventually, uh, start sharing more information, um, on a blog and website. So there's going to be more to come there, but for now that's, that's the best place to go. But I, I a hundred percent agree with you. It's don't make the mistake of only looking at the people who seem like they're your type of organization. They're your peers. That's not your only competition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I uh, I did exactly this for uh, for somebody I'm working with. And I was like, going, here's all I can fit on one sl one PowerPoint slide. Right. <laughs> this is the competition. So it's uh, right. it's a, it's very interesting to map that out. Um, Amanda, yeah. I want to thank you for doing this, uh, having a conversation with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. A lot of fun. What did you think about my conversation with Amanda Lester? Let me know by sending me an email at my name, Dave, 
at DaveWakeman.com. Make sure you check out my website. It is DaveWakeman.com. There you can get the Talking Tickets newsletter, the business value, all the stuff I do. There is a link. You just drop your email in the box and you will start getting stuff from me. Uh, there will be some new workshop dates coming up. There'll be all kinds of great stuff there. Um, blog posts, all kinds of stuff. So check it out, DaveWakeman.com. Uh, if you like this podcast, make sure you share it with somebody. Uh, subscribe or rate this thing. Um, I, I love all of those things and I appreciate your feedback. Uh, if you are in the market or you have been thinking about refund protection, which you should have because concern for whether or not a show will go on or whether or not somebody's going to be able to go to a show, it's still there peeking at the back of people's mind and booking protect has the data to show that people are looking for that peace of mind more than ever. Uh, but it's not just about giving people the peace of mind. It is an opportunity to improve your brand, uh, offer a different level of customer service, uh, and give people just more control on their purchase path. Uh, people are often looking for things that they might not know they want, and they might not know they want refund protection until it's offered to them. So check out my friends at bookingprotect.com. I uh, talk to Kat, Kath, Haley, uh, anyone on the team, they're all great. Uh, they provide a great service. They have been great friends to the podcast and the newsletter since these things started. Uh, this is also, I should add, the fourth anniversary of the Business of Fun podcast. So happy birthday to me, even though I think I said it on the last one too. So still, happy birthday to me. Um, as we head into the summer, <clears throat> things are, we've hit another wave of the of the covid um, I know it is still incredibly tough for people out there. Um, if you need someone to talk to, uh, if you're just feeling stressed out and you want to bounce some ideas off of someone, if you're just whatever it is, send me a note, daviddavewakeman.com, uh, and we can have a chat. I'm happy to chat with anybody because I know how difficult some days can be, uh, struggling through some of these challenges that we're still dealing with. Um, so send me a note. Um, I'm happy to talk with you, uh, even if it's just to crack a couple really awful dad jokes. I'll do it. I'll do what I have to, um, because I'm so grateful for everybody listening, uh, sharing, subscribing, uh, and just being here for me. So thank you again, and I will talk to y'all soon. <laughs>